Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is Miskatonic University's Remote Education Program from the Literature Department offering uh, Graphical Literature and Society and History, course number 209, better known as the Comics Course. I am your ever-diligent Professor Hamby, along with my ever-suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Uh, Rowan is getting nice and personal with our new guest co-host today, Buster the Rat. Buster is about 15 pounds and large enough to take out most dogs. And Buster is here to share with us his experience of guest starring in Christopher Priest's Run of Black Panther. It is the day after American Thanksgiving. I don't have any updates from Dr. Feckett or the Miskatonic Manticores or Thomas, but more will be coming soon on all that. You can go capture the podcast at comicscourse.captivate.fm. The website is comicscourse.org. My Twitter is Prof Hamby. Now, let's jump straight into Christopher Priest's Black Panther. By the time Christopher Priest came around to Black Panther, he was pretty well established in the world. And it was what is known by many as the Marvel Knights era. I'm going to be using for today's lecture... Black Panther by Christopher Priest, The Complete Collection, Volume 1, and that will go into the show notes with ISBN. It's an excellent collection because the individual issues are pretty hard to find at this point. And you will see that while Christopher Priest was trying to stay true to the history of Black Panther, I would argue that he completely reinvented him. Now, it is hard to separate this iteration of Black Panther from the time period. This was the 90s, and New Jack Swing was in full effect. And for those who are not alive in the 90s and not familiar with it, New Jack Swing was fashion, music, movies. There was even a movie called New Jack City that was pretty influential. And it was the age of uh, actors like Samuel L. Jackson rising to prominence. And this sort of fusion of dance and hip-hop and pop and other things in the New Jack style, I cannot afford the rights to play a full version of the song I'm about to play. But I'm going to play just a snippet under fair use here of Rex and Effects New Jack Swing, which was from Motown. You ever heard this before, Rowan? Sounds familiar. Yeah, they, com they used combined R&B and rap. It was very danceable, a lot of energy, very urban. And this is the world into which Christopher Priest wrote the Black Panther. Now, he brought Black Panther to America, situated him, fact, situated him in fact, in a rather grimy urban New York City. And so he moved him out of Wakanda uh, and situated him in a position of being symbolic as a black superhero, even more so than he'd already been. Now... I reread these issues in preparation for today's lecture, and I've probably read these, I don't know, at least a dozen, probably closer to a 20-plus times. And one of the things that amazes me is that they're still insanely entertaining, even after all these times that I've read them. I still think they're amazing. So I wanted to play a little bit of that Rex and Effect New Jack Swing because you want to have that style. And I want to tell you just a little bit about what was happening with Marvel at the time. Marvel was really struggling. And they, they had gone back and forth with ideas about rebooting the universe. They made fun of DC for it. They kind of did soft reboots themselves, uh, especially more after this. 
but they came up with the idea of trying to capture what was happening in the zeitgeist at the time with the New Jack style and trying to bring that into their urban lines with Daredevil, the Punisher, and folded in a non-native New York character, Black Panther, into that. And it was written by writers like Joe Quesada, who operated separately from the rest of the Marvel staff up in this sort of penthouse and were given access to technologies a lot of the other Marvel staff didn't have, which led to some animosity. Uh, because, of course, their books look better when they're allowed to use expensive technologies that the other people aren't given. Yeah, it's almost like when you give some people more and better stuff to do their job better, people are going to get mad. Right. It was a tumultuous time for Marvel. And I don't want to go too deep into that because there's a whole lot to talk about there by itself if we want to. But I'm more interested in the character of Black Panther and the representation of him and how that reflects on a sort of societal whole as a literary creation that both reflects society and later influences it. Now, we'd had Black Panther for years and years and years as a member of the Avengers, but he was kind of, I mean, I hate to say it, he was kind of a poor man's Captain America in a lot of ways. So you had Captain America, and there was always this idea that Captain America ar armor uh, wasn't really spandex or anything like that. It probably was some sort of chain mail, had some sort of armor capacity. He had an unbreakable shield. He had tons of training. The Black Panther had lots of training, and the heart-shaped herb gave him the equivalent of the super soldier serum. And he had some vaguely defined enhanced senses. So he might somehow be on par with Captain America without the writing to elevate him to that level, at least unless you were a Black Panther fan and had really gotten into jungle action, which, let's remember, this was the age of the direct market. There wasn't a comicsology or a Marvel Unlimited to go back and reread old stuff in. Um, so a lot of people didn't really know Black Panther super well. So now we come to Christopher Priest. Christopher Priest was not trying to reinvent the Black Panther. In fact, he has said that he went back to his first appearance in Fantastic Four number 52, and he was trying to recreate Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's Black Panther. Now, let's remember that Black Panther. Let's talk about what we saw there. He was rich, he was styling, and he, it, he was basically a kick-ass playboy. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to invite the premier superhero team in the world to my techno jungle. And by the way, my bed's got really nice silk sheets. Just saying. And after we fight and I kick their ass, and they kind of technically turn the tables because there was an unexpected party involved, I'm going to lay back and smoke a cigarette and, as a cool cat, chat with them, you know? And, and that was the, the Black Panther that was represented there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by the time we got to McGregor's Black Panther, it was totally different. Totally, totally different. You could never see him doing any of that. Right. Now we get to Christopher Priest, and I think as we go through this, you will see how he was trying to capture, but things changed. And I'm going to do something I usually try not to do in the podcast, which is I'm basically going to read the first few pages out to people and describe them. Because I think when you get hit with this, it speaks for itself. So, first of all, I think the opening page of Christopher Priest's Black Panther might be the best opening page of any comic ever. There's a white man in a white t-shirt and white underwear and socks. His pants are missing. Blue socks. 
blue socks, sitting up on a toilet. So his feet are on the toilet base, toilet lid, and he's sitting up on the top basin with his gun out. Somewhere off on the side, we see somebody saying, the land of my fathers now as it ever was, Wakanda. And thus a nation was reborn under the great King T'Chaka, which led to a period of isolation ending roughly a decade ago when Ulysses' claw discovered vibranium within the Great Mound. Then we get a sort of voiceover text uh, that says, the story thus far, Buster, a rat so big you could put a saddle on him, continued to elude me. This is the guy pointing the gun at the ground. Uh, and we see a small rat hole uh, at ground level at the end of the tile in the bathroom behind the toilet. The client and his personal entourage had moments before collectively leapt out an open window, leaving me, Everett K. Ross, emperor of useless white boys, to fend for himself among the indigenous tribes of the Leslie Inn Hill housing project. Zuri was into his third retelling of how the great god T'Chaka ran the evil white devils from their ancient homeland. The bathroom had no door. I still had no pants. Wait, still? Still. This is the best opening page of a comic book series ever. I, I love how they did the bathroom in the shade. And look at his face. Look at how scared he is. You could you tell, could, you his could, eyes look like they're about to pop out of his you head. You tell he may need to open up that toilet lid in a few minutes. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it's great. Now, the Zuri they mention here, you'll see at the bottom of the next page, huge muscular guy. This was played by a much less huge and muscular uh, uh, actor in the T'Challa film. <laughs> but as we go on, Everett K. Ross, who we saw in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but represented very differently by a hobbit, um, yeah. says, and yes, while struggling through finals at Oxford, this was just what I had in mind. Shooting housing project rats wearing no pants. <laughs> I named him Buster, as in bust of my chops. Buster knew I wouldn't shoot him. The rounds might go through the floor and hit somebody below. Oddly enough, nobody was singing, which really disturbed me. I mean, on TV, there was all of this singing in the ghetto. I was made to believe people sang here and that singing would often spin out into these big production numbers. I'd been lied to. Now, obviously, Christopher Priest, who is African-American, uh, here is painting Everett Ross as a, a racist through ignorance white guy. You know, he does not understand... I mean, he thinks they all sit around and sing. I mean, this is reminiscent to me of the Mel Brooks movie, Blazing Saddles, uh, where the foreman of the rail line construction starts yelling at the black workers, like, when you were slaves, you sang all the time. You sang like birds. Why can't you sing now? And uh, one of the co-leads of the movie walks forward and starts singing a production number from Broadway, bothering the foreman. Um, by the way, for anyone who's not seen Blazing Saddles, I highly recommend it. Some people have decried it as a movie that uses racist words a lot. It does. To make fun of racists. <laughs> the words are racist when you use it to make fun of racists. Right. In, in fact, it's probably one of the most anti-racist films I've ever seen. Right. I made her watch it. Yeah, I, I still am not fully sure what that movie was about. It, it was very straightforward. Okay, anyway. You told me that all throughout it. I, and I told you that about Donnie Darko, and it was true of Donnie Darko, too, wasn't it? Yeah, but not Blazing Saddles. We'll watch it again. So, as we, as we move on down, 
Uh, and by the way, Everett K. Ross was not created for this series. Some people believe he was because the character became so intertwined with Black Panther during this series, where he often refers to T'Challa as the client because he's with the State Department and he's assigned to look over T'Challa when he visits the U.S. But actually, he was invented for another title that uh, Christopher Priest had been doing some writing on, and he wanted to reuse him here because he liked the character. So down at the bottom, we see Zuri drunk, who looks like he could wrestle a rhino with his bare hands, even though he's a much older fellow, and says, Zuri was a lifelong friend of T'Chaka, the client's last father, late father, and previous king of Wakanda. An old guy, Zuri could still break me in half and make raw switches. At which time, Wakanda entered a period of accelerated growth, which was primarily why I let him ramble on while we waited there for the client's return. He didn't shut up until the devil stopped by. Right. Now, we move into pages that I'm not going to read entirely, but Ross jumps around a lot, and he's telling this all to this blonde woman, and we don't know who she is initially, but we find out that she is both his girlfriend and his boss at the State Department, and find out later was the college girlfriend of T'Challa, oh. which is why she wasn't willing to deal with him and wanted to assign it to Ross. Because too many old feelings and that kind of stuff. And Ross jumps around like crazy. So you have to stitch together what happens. One of the beauties of Christopher Priest's writing, though, is that it, he doesn't make it confusing. You do have to stitch it together. You find yourself going, okay, I have to remember this so that I can connect it with other things later. But he doesn't make it annoying which is really a feat, because usually that is annoying as crap. Um, as next few pages go on, it just becomes a blur. We see the word cheese, and then we see some of the main characters lined up in what are obviously police photos. Uh, his boss says, Ross, 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 Ross. This is like watching Pulp Fiction and Rewind. My head is exploding. Back, Ross. Back farther. Okay. Then we see Ross in a mud pit with Zuri and a bunch of bikini women wrestlers. Ross, further back. Then we see Ross yell, uh, holding his badge up to a gangster. Everett K. Ross, Office of the Chief of Protocol, U.S. State Department. Y'all be cool, just chill. Don't start none, won't be none. Ross? All right, all right. <laughs> so we're, we're getting these jump forwards of what we're going to find out in this retelling. And finally, we get back to, in fact, not the starting point of the story. <laughs> of course. But a double-page spread of T'Challa standing there with two drop-dead gorgeous women. And this is not the T'Challa as he's represented in earlier Black Panther comics. First of all, he's in America not wearing the Black Panther outfit. Finally! He's on the streets wearing a suit. Finally! With a shaved head. And looks like a bad motherfucker. Seriously. I mean, he he's styling. Uh -huh. And he's got command. And the two women on his sides are statuesque and gorgeous. Uh -huh. We also find out they're like 14. Oh. Oh. That just made you feel bad, didn't it? Yeah. You're a bad person now. That's uncomfortable. Yeah, this makes Everett Ross uncomfortable, too. Uh, it, now, they are introduced. Now, let's go through this page. Because this introduces the radical change between the old T'Challa and the new one. So T'Challa is walking away from his limo 
with these two young women who look 19 and we find out later are 14 uh, or maybe 15 and T'Challa is walking up to a convertible uh, a Mercedes-Benz convertible with what are obviously some gangbangers in it you know these are criminals and one of them says so you the king of Africa or some right you supposed to impress me or what Where's your little cat suit with those cute little ears, man? I hear you a punk. You'll be carrying the Mother Avengers bags and whatnot. Black Panther, she right. So, what? You and In Vogue gonna throw down? It's a reference to the girls in Vogue or a girl group of the time. Yo, Mira, this is my world, Holmes. I be king here. T'Challa just looks at him and says, Safety your weapons and lay them on the ground. Hey, you a funny guy, pussycat man. You know that? You should get on Sinbad. Talk show of the time. Oh. This is your last warning. Sorry, my hearing's not so good, S.A. I think we just have to kill you now. Everett uh, K. Ross in the voiceover says, Ramos, the rocket scientist, was threatening an Avenger from the most technologically advanced society in the free world while leaning against a metal car. And Black Panther proceeds to, out of his sleeve, produce a small metal gadget and electrify everybody in the car, paralyzing them. Then he simply grabs Ramos, drags him by his jacket out of the car, and then says in his native African language, which I may be mispronouncing this, I think it's Soso or something like that. I've seen it spelled in Roman letters different ways. It says to uh, his companions, see to his men, do not kill them. The girl, and we see in a voiceover text again, the girls were six feet tall and not quite legal age. Which means T'Challa there is like six foot four or something. Because he's much taller than the girls. They are wearing very high heels too. Yeah. And... Uh, one of them has a dress pulled down to a point that is probably illegal in some districts. It's definitely not good for that age. Well, different culture. They're legal to marry. I mean, we find out more about them very soon. And it's Everett Ross. One of them walks up to the car as the guys are starting to recover from their tasing, and she just lazily kicks him in the head and knocks his weapon away. The client called them Dora Milaje, or adored ones, and described them as the king's concomitments, a tribal thing, kind of wives in training, and a real blast at state functions. Deadly Amazonian high school karate chicks would be more accurate. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, there's a later scene. First of all, they 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 don't speak in English. They only speak in Zoso, although it becomes clear at one point they understand English. They only talk to T'Challa. They won't talk to anyone else. And they consider everyone else irrelevant. At one point in the car, they start completely undressing to change outfits and consider Everett Ross equivalent to a piece of furniture. Wow. Irrelevant to get naked in front of. (laughs) Which really disturbs him on multiple levels. Can't blame him. But these are his, not his wives, but they are all prepared to be his wife. By being engaged, they are from different tribes within Wakanda, the Wakandas. Wakanda. <laughs> Wakanda. Wakanda uh, is stupid. 
It, I agree. But they're from different tribes, and by being engaged to all of them, he kind of balances the peace. All of them have a potential right to the throne. And there is a point later where we see Monica Lynn again, and she says, and he says, well, you know them. You saw them around the palace. And she says, they were little kids then, and I didn't understand their function. Because apparently they have been ready to be his wife for a long time. I mean, since they were relatively young children. Um, but he is not taking any of them as a wife. Yeah, which is why he was willing to date Monica Lynn. Right. Uh, but, it, but it's all very complicated. And, of course, this is a retcon, because I don't remember seeing any of these characters back in Don McGregor's Wakanda. Mm -hmm. Now, things get interesting. He takes Ramos, throws him into an alley against some trash cans, walks through some shadows, and his clothes blur away to become his Black Panther outfit. Holy Certainly shit, that went into detail. Yeah, I mean, that that's not a six-pack. That's an eight-pack, ten-pack, twelve-pack. I mean, I don't know. There there are muscles on this guy that I don't think exist on actual humans. And if you want pages to prove artists don't just draw women unaccurately, I present to you this page. I mean, yeah. <laughs> th this guy is the muscular Barbie of... <laughs> really. But we finally have an outfit he doesn't have to change into. We finally have a shape-changing outfit, which we saw in the movies, right? And here is the critical scene. Here is one tiny little bit that changed everything. Now, there wasn't... There were, actually, there was a scene on page before, a, a comment. In Don McGregor's Wakanda, they were becoming highly technically advanced. Outside countries wanted Wakandan technology that they were developing. By using. Well, they were using, but they, they were still trying to get a grasp on vibranium technology. Here, Everett Ross makes the comment that they are the most technologically advanced country in the world. Not just some, in some ways, but overall, Wakanda is now the most technologically advanced nation in the world. Mm -hmm. That's a leap. And when Ramos comes and runs at the Black Panther with a knife, the knife shatters and breaks on the skin-tight outfit. His outfit is no longer just cloth. Because they've, they expressly said in Don McGregor's run that a bullet would kill the Black Panther in his outfit. Mm -hmm. It was just normal cloth, and it was shown that repeatedly with its tearing. Yeah, it was just ceremonial garbs made of cloth. No more. And we're going to see more of that. It's now closer to the movies than the movies where it said being made out of vibranium. Right. And the movies took that from this. Mm -hmm. or, or the movies were based really, I would argue, even more on later Black Panthers by other writers, but those writers inherited it from Christopher Priest. Mm -hmm. So the Black Panther grabs Ramos. We get an overtext. As I said, I learned most of this after the fact, but I know for certain the client can make it from street to the roof while towing a full-grown man by his hair in under 10 seconds. Now the T'Challa takes this thug on the roof and just starts smacking him around and says, We will have an understanding between us. Ramos, speak of it to no man. A child was killed at the Tomorrow Fund. We're now getting into why he's in America. It is why I am here in America at a time when my homeland desperately needs me. You will help me 
bring that child's killer to justice. You will agree to act as my servant, and I will agree to not carve your heart like a roast. With this art and the wording and stuff, it's actually really scary. Yeah. Now, Ramos is yelling, you crazy man, you crazy. This I have been called. Fear not, my energy dagger is set on a non-lethal setting. You will feel only pain. However, the blade's energy signature has marked you. Wherever you go, Kimoyo will find you. This is your life. You belong to me now. Yeah, T'Challa. This is not the old T'Challa. Mm -hmm. Kimoyo is an idea they introduce here. It was actually mentioned briefly in previous Black Panthers, I believe, as a communication system. It's now expanded as a super high-tech communication system that kind of binds Wakandans together as a communications infrastructure. And we saw them in the movie represented by these Kamoyo beads. Their internet. Now, we see this energy dagger. We also see later Black Panther having vibranium soles on his feet that let him run up walls, that let him move soundlessly, that let him drop from multiple floors up harmlessly. He can pop out little energy uh, claws from his hands. Yes, and we do not get to see Iron Man in this section of Christopher Priest's Black Panther, but when it's Tony Stark versus T'Challa, it is epic. I would imagine. And it, it is beautiful. I really want to see that. So now we get to Everett Ross, the stupidest white boy in America, potentially, showing up to pick up the client, who he figures is traveling by himself with, like, one bag, and he shows up in this tiny little Miata playing, Get down! Get down, Jungle Boogie. Um, anyway. Meanwhile, Everett Ross is trying to stop telling the story and trying to get his girlfriend into bed, but she's also his boss and trying to get a straight story out of him. And what unfolds is that basically the Wakandan Embassy had been funding a project uh, in the Leslie and Hills uh, projects for something called the Tomorrow Foundation to help african-americans in the u.s uh build a better future and it became corrupted completely filled with drugs embezzlement money laundering and at the end of all this a girl got killed and this has him t'challa is an idealist he is not willing to see this happen to something he's had his hands in and in fact the girl that was killed was probably picked specifically to provoke him because it was a young girl that he took publicity photos with. Oh. Yeah, and when I say young, I mean very young, she like was, six, seven years yeah, old. She was eight at most. Right. Meanwhile, there are these r r racial cleansings. And for those who don't know, racial cleansings have not been limited to Europeans versus blacks. Oh, no. Trust me. You go to Eastern Europe, plenty of white-on-white -white racial cleansing. You go through African tribes, plenty of, of, of tribal cleansing, if you want to call it that. Trust me, they consider themselves different races between many of those tribes. They are not homogenous. And Christopher Priest touches on that here, talking about these civil wars in these neighboring African nations and how T'Challa opened up refugee camps in Wakanda to try to give people a safe place but then wars broke out in the internment, in, not internment camps, in these refugee camps between people. And the Wakandans aren't happy about it. So he's facing huge civil unrest at home while this is happening in America, and it is all way too convenient. You want to know what I want to 
Hmm. How Wakanda is able to have war is when it keeps moving. We're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> the first rule of Wakanda is you don't talk about Wakanda. <laughs> so we get to see Ramona again, his uh, technically stepmother, but the only mother he knew growing up. And then we find out that T'Challa has shown up at the airport, not by himself with bags, but with Zuri, his two Dora Milaje, and what looks like 40 or 50 attendants behind him. Holy. To which Everett K. Ross is like, that's not going to fit in my Miata. He needs like a, two buses or more. Yeah. Oh, like five it, and it turns out, he mentions just in passing, that there's like 40, 50 people there just vaguely drawn behind T'Challa are like technicians and scientists and engineers and stuff. He brought along a small army. Right. And then Everett Ross goes to answer the door uh, after looking for Buster to find the devil standing in the door and mystic fire surrounding everything. So when he said the devil, he meant literally. He meant literally. For those familiar with Marvel lore, it is Mephisto, one of the stand-ins for the devil, Lucifer. Uh, to which Everett K. Ross does what any sane man would do. He shuts the door. the door, looks over at Yuri and says, it's for you. I love, <laughs> I love the look on his face that this happens every day. <laughs> right. So now we get to Mephisto's come into the apartment and has summoned a throne of skulls that he's put next to Ross, who's sitting on an old crappy green sofa without pants. Right, and, and resting his feet on skulls and all that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to go into all this. There are great moments between Ross and Mephisto. And his pants are a major part of it. You can read that for yourself. It's just injected humor in the title. But to get back to T'Challa, we see the Dora Milaje. Uh, we see that they continue to be represented as somebody's wet dream. They do not look 14. I'm sorry, 15. I, I don't, they don't actually say their age. And I don't know what Christopher Priest was thinking of as underage. I don't know. But he said teenage. He said they were underage. That's all he said about their age. Maybe he meant they were 17. I don't know. Anyway, as the story goes on, it's, there's a lot of humor, things get thrown around, and the political mess for T'Challa becomes deeper and deeper. Uh, he ends up talking on the Kamoyo system with his mother, Ramona, and we find out about this religious figure named Achebe, who's in the refugee camps, and maybe behind some of this. So this is a different kind of conflict that T'Challa has to deal with. When we met Don McGregor's T'Challa, I said that he was T'Challa the king, but in some ways that was kind of misleading. It was a simplistic representation of a king. The king's threats always boiled down to things that were one-on-one -on -one conflicts. Black Panther versus, you know, this supervillain. Black Panther versus these monsters. Black Panther finds who actually killed uh, his attendant instead of Monica Lynn being framed for it. Everything got broken down into things that an individual could face and individual level problems. Mm -hmm. So 
it was really more about T'Challa as this sort of wise, humble king figure that could solve things in a very humanistic way, on a human level. Now we have a T'Challa who's dealing with national problems. I mean, refugee camps. These are filled with people who are fighting based on ancient hatreds. And there's not even a consideration that he's going to be able to stand up and make some heroic speech and make people happy. That's just not going to happen. And people are after him with blood. They're setting up money laundering and drugs and using this to destroy his image and pull him out of the country. And killing young children. Right. These These are evil people with political machinations setting up things that an individual can't face as an individual. So T'Challa has to be a king, just like the Don McGregor's T'Challa was, but instead of a philosopher king, instead of a humanist king, he has to be a mastermind king. He has to be a genius. And by this point, in the first few issues of the Christopher Priest Complete Collection Part 1, which covers about the first 18 issues or so, we think to ourselves, he's overwhelmed. He's screwed. He just can't deal with this. He's just blindly going about things in America because he doesn't know how to handle this problem. And he's facing the corruption of the Future Foundation or Tomorrow Foundation um, because he doesn't really know how to handle the political problem. I'll also kind of skip past the whole Zuri and Ross in the mud wrestling pit with the bikini-clad girls. Um, it's an amusing scene, but just amusing. I, I love the scene of him in the car with the Dora Milaje and him and the other guy. Mm-hmm. And it's just these big people and then just, just a small little white boy driving the car. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's kind of like Christopher Priest read Don McGregor's notes and it, where Marvel had told Don McGregor, we need more white people. He's like, okay, you want a white guy in the book? Central white guy in the book? I'll give you a central white guy. <laughs> and I love that they have like the voiceover bit on the side of scenes and stuff. It makes it feel like a movie. Right. And it has been described in some ways as Pulp Fiction as a comic, which was a big movie in this time period with a nonlinear form of storytelling, which uh, Ross's boss referenced earlier when he was jumping around in his explanation. I want to see like an animated TV show of this. I would too, but they've gone in the cinematic universe in a different route. Mm-hmm. Unless they maybe, maybe on what if they could bring in Christopher Priest Black Panther. That'd, yeah, be cool. that'd be cool. So Black Panther goes hunting for information, which involves taking an old woman and having one of his Dora Milaje punch her repeatedly and choke her with a nightstick in her hospital bed. They're not playing. No. No. So it... it we, we now get Achebe set up as a villain. He's psycho. Um, that's disturbing. Yeah, he's disturbing. Oh, and that's here, haunt my dreams. Yeah. There's some great storytelling in here. And I'm not going to go over all of it because what's important is the thematic development. That we see T'Challa's history and we basically get a sense that Mephisto is helping orchestrate things. Mephisto is feeding Achebe, who's fueling the unrest in the refugee camps. So Mephisto is part of the problems in Wakanda and helping empower the person who's trying to dethrone T'Challa. Now, we see... Hmm? Sorry, who's that wearing the Scarlet Witch outfit? 
That's the Scarlet Witch. She's black in this universe? No. Just apparently very tan right now. Uh, for, the, for some context, we see some scenes Mephisto's causing T'Challa to live through some of his history. And for readers in this time period who weren't familiar with T'Challa's history, they kind of get a very quick rundown. The death of T'Chaka, how he was educated in the U.S., his fight against the Fantastic Four, how he was an Avenger. And in this Avengers panel, we see Thor, Captain America, uh, Goliath, Vision, and Scarlet Witch. And Scarlet Witch is drawn very dark-skinned. I think this is meant to be a reflection of she's from Eastern Europe, and this artist saw her as very swarthy-skinned compared to the very pale skin we often see Scarlet Witch represented as. Okay, I, I apologize for the random jump. I was just very confused. No, I understand. And we see him with Monica, kissing Monica, and then Mephisto drops the illusion and he's kissing one of the Dora Milaje, which is basically the same thing as proposing to her for formal marriage in their culture. Yeah, it's Nakia. And this is what she wanted. Now, the other one, Okoye, is... she un After things get explained, she understands what happens. But this is setting up a long-term conflict with Nakia, who's obsessed with one day actually marrying T'Challa, and thinks that he's finally acting on what must be his true feelings. He's freaked out, runs away, and we find him tracked by these figures that are dressed similarly to him, but in white outfits. It turns out they are part of a group called the White Wolves, and we find out that he has a brother, an adopted brother who was raised by Ramona also and had been essentially the head of a secret police in Wakanda until T'Challa took over and disbanded them. And now we get a brother versus brother conflict going within the family as we find out that this brother both wants to answer to T'Challa, he wants T'Challa to be king, but he wants to be the kind of king he defines. Why, and this is obviously a major point of conflict because T'Challa is not the kind of king that's going to have a secret police. So maybe the, and the hunter's code name when he was the head of all this was the White Wolf. The name given to Bucky Barnes, jokingly, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And his art is done a little inconsistently here, but it's clear that he's Caucasian. He was found as a baby and wreckage in Wakanda when a plane crashed, and he was the only survivor. Oh, that's kind of, that's kind of amusing that he's White Wolf, because that kind of reminds me of the Romulus and Remus story. Right. Except raised by a panther tribe. Uh-huh. And remember, the White Wolves are symbols of, figure, of fear in Wakandan culture. In fact, T'Challa had to fight the White Wolves in the mountains in Don McGregor's story. So, I mean, he's basically, as the head of the secret police, his name is like the boogeyman, the demon. Meanwhile, uh, we see Akebe, who's been given these powers of influence by Mephisto, addressing Wakandans and refugees on TV, and basically doing the whole, T'Challa doesn't care about you, we need to rise up and take care of ourselves, and isn't it good, I'm here to take care of you kind of thing. Um, and he's referred to by somebody as like an evil Bishop Tutu, highly charismatic, but out for his own gain. 
And he kind of has these moments of uh, comic absurdity mixed in with his malice. We find out that the white, the dogs of war, which are uh, the Hatut Zaraze and their native language to answer to the white wolf, have the ability to cloak themselves and basically turn invisible. And they go after T'Challa basically as a way of saying hello. This is basically the white wolf's way of saying, I still have my men, I'm still available, I'm still here to help you, and you need me, and you need my kind of help. So he's trying to manipulate T'Challa. He's trying to appeal to him, but manipulate him at the same time. And we see later that when T'Challa refuses to accept the kind of help that he wants to give, he's willing to say, well, then maybe T'Challa needs to step aside for someone else to take the throne. And willing to fight to kill T'Challa. So it's a complicated relationship there. And again, far more complicated. In the earlier iterations of Black Panther, we either see figures that are duplicitous or loyal. And they just exist on polar extremes. Here is a character that wants to be loyal, but under his terms and conditions. And it's a little more real world in that way. People are complicated and messed up. Right. And it's very much the antithesis of T'Challa. Mm -hmm. And we see here that he does have kind of a mirrored version of T'Challa's ceremonial uh, armor as the White Wolf, including the ridiculous cape, which I always hated. Just tear it off. Yeah. So as the story goes on, Ross gets tortured. We find out more about his background. It helps us become more sympathetic to Ross as Mephisto kind of tortures him. Finally, T'Challa gets back to this apartment in the ghetto, and Ross is like, do something, do something, are you seeing it? And T'Challa walks up and just punches Mephisto and lays him out cold. Imagine having the balls to punch the devil. And we find out that, remember that huge crowd of people, those engineers and technicians? Mm -hmm. They were on the other floors of that apartment building. They were monitoring everything. And manipulating universal constants that cut Mephisto off from his power. They were not idle during that time. And T'Challa was constantly being kept up to date on all of it and dealing with it. He is not the playboy in the first um, No, comics. No, no. This T'Challa would not have Wyatt Wingfoot you know, sneak into his military encampments and surprise his guards. This T'Challa is the mastermind. Now, this is something that becomes an ongoing thing. We'll see later in the Reginald Hudlin Black Panthers that T'Challa is considered an intellect on par with Reed Richards, Doctor Doom, Tony Stark, uh, Doctor Strange, and is made one of the Illuminati, one of the secret geniuses that help manipulate the fate of the world. So it is a, he is a very different kind of figure. And this is a taste of things to come. This unexpected result of all of his planning and manipulations that happen off screen and a microcosm of dealing with Mephisto show up much later in even more complicated ways. Christopher Priest is giving us an aperitif. He's giving us a little taste of what's to come in much more complicated ways later. So T'Challa then literally rips Mephisto's heart out and throws it into a pickle jar, which Zuri eats part of later. Who's Zuri? Zuri. Ooh. The big guy? Oh, oh yeah, sorry. I apologize. 
Ross and T'Challa end up in Mephisto's realm, we find out Mephisto admits to helping give Achebe these powers. Uh, He's a collector who wants the nobility and purity of T'Challa's soul. So T'Challa makes him a deal. T'Challa says, you you rescind your deal with Achebe, you cut off his power, and you can have my soul. Mephisto's like, great, let's do this right now. T'Challa's like, okay, but you have to take all of it. Which doesn't turn out well for Mephisto because T'Challa is not an individual. Here's another change introduced by Christopher Priest. We had heard about vision quests before with T'Challa. We, in the, in the Black Panther Volume 2 miniseries from 1987, 88, we saw that there was a mystical aspect to the Panther God. But it is firmly established now by Christopher Priest that all the ex-Black Panthers, all the Black Panthers that have ever died going back to the founding of Wakanda in ancient tribal days are all spiritually connected. Their souls all dwell in the same spiritual realm and they're all part of one entity, which Mephisto can't absorb. So by taking their soul, his soul, he has to take it all, which is going to eat him alive from the inside. So here's the second part of Black Panther that just got dropped on us by Christopher Priest. He's not only a technological mastermind, he understands things like magic and spiritualism too, even if they aren't his normal craft, which a careful reader will ask, What other kinds of mastermind might he be as well? The answer will come shortly. So a new deal has to be made. Uh, Achebe loses his power, but T'Challa is still stuck in America. And Ramona, who's acting as regent in Esteed, his stepmother, tells him to stay there. And we see in the final panel that Ramona and Achebe are in allegiance together. They're working together. He's been betrayed by his mother. The next little bit of the story, we have a fight from Craven. We get lots of great action scenes. There's a lot of neat little callbacks. We're not going to get into all that. Um, we do get a scene of the man-ape sitting around at a state... or Not man-ape, sorry. It's Zuri wearing a ceremonial outfit very similar to the villain man-ape, who's also from Wakanda. And I love this little touch that he basically looks a lot like the man-ape. And Zuri's complaining because he's at this fancy State Department function going, this is a feast? Bah, there's been no bloodshed and the women are all clothed. (laughs) Wait, is he holding the baby cheetah? No, he has the skin of a cheetah wrapped over him, along with ceremonial armor and other stuff. And we see here a flashback to Nakia, who was literally fishing in the river when she was selected to be one of the Dora Milaje and represent her tribe. And we find, we see more of her thoughts. We also get to see the thoughts of Ross's girlfriend, who is a State Department official back when she was T'Challa's girlfriend in college. There's a bunch of other scenes I, I don't want to bore people with too much. But as we move forward, the important thing at the State Department dinner is that we then suddenly cut to a scene where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people outside. They're gathered. They're black people. That's a gorgeous and 
T'Challa goes out to speak to them. A bunch of buffoonery is happening in the background. And T'Challa says, what do you want? Why have you come? And this old black woman says, to see if it was true, to see if you were really here. I do not understand. I have always been among you. You are with them, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four. They don't care about us. They're not our heroes. And we cut to a young Franklin Richards sitting with the thing. Franklin Richards, the son of Sue Storm and Mr. Fantastic, with his uncle Benjamin Grimm, the thing. And he's confused. Who's heroes? Because this is a statement by Christopher Priest. You know, young Franklin Richards thinks the Fantastic Four stands for everybody. The Avengers stand for everybody. But Christopher Priest is here saying that these white superhero groups stand for the establishment, and the establishment is white. They exist to maintain a status quo, which when the status quo is racist, means they're not there for black people. Um, and he masterfully says this without outright saying it. And I, th I think it's more effective for that. As the story goes on, we see more fuckery with the White Wolf, with the thugs. Things happen as the story stretches out. And eventually the Avengers show back up. And when the Avengers show up, I can't help but remember Don McGregor getting, you know, fussed at for not having the Avengers come save uh, the Black Panther in Wakanda. And Don McGregor having to fight to keep the story among Wakandans. So here we have the Black Panther dealing with things, and the Avengers show up. Tony Stark, Iron Man, The Vision, um, Scarlet, Witch. Scarlet Witch, Wonder Man, Firestar, Thor, and he's not pictured here, but Captain America will be here as well. And they want answers. Oh, now, oh that, that style change just right. threw me. Now, what we're getting here for a moment is a flashback. Back to the comic from the 1960s, when T'Challa and Steve Rogers teamed up on an adventure and Steve Rogers suggested that the Black Panther join the Avengers. So this is kind of reprinted here for modern readers. Christopher Priest is really careful to bring the readers along with him. And he does a good job of this. And one of the things T'Challa has to remind the Avengers is, I'm not a superhero. I'm a king. I'm the king of a sovereign nation. You do not get to question my decisions as a king. And I don't have to explain anything. He's kind of scary in this. And then he just leaves them. He doesn't give a crap. He goes on and deals with things. There is an attempted assassination where Monica Lynn has been wired up by a Chebe and is being controlled by remote control and an exoskeleton attempting to assassinate somebody to frame her and frame T'Challa. Monica Lynn has, at this point, been refusing to talk to T'Challa, and he's been avoiding her, because she's tired of constantly having her life in danger whenever she's near him. Can you blame the woman? Can't really blame her. And she's tired of just the sheer chaos. To be fair, whenever writers write her with him, she really does get her life threatened every time. Now, keep in mind at this point, the Black Panther has been involved in huge dust-ups all over New York City. Uh, huge crowds, assassination attempts, all kinds of other crap has happened. So, at this point, President Clinton assigns Ross to a station in Antarctica. 
<laughs> He's just like, yeah. Now I don't really care for the art shift that happens at this point in the story. Oh, oh, no. Yeah, we're we're, we're uh, yeah. I don't care for it either. It's very cartoony. But it is still worth reading, and the writing is really solid. Now at this point in the story, T'Challa has figured out what happened at the Tomorrow Foundation. I didn't go over that because you can read it for yourselves and should. This is definitely worth reading. But now we're getting into what's happening in Wakanda because Mephisto isn't the whole story. People were arming people, you know, insurgents in Wakanda. People are tracing and trying to steal Wakandan technology. And so now T'Challa is tracing back that line through various uh, uh, mercenaries to American intelligence operatives, which brings him in direct conflict with Captain America. Captain America, of course, can't believe that America's intelligence agency would try to destabilize Wakandan government. Uh, and at one point, T'Challa says flat out to the Avengers, the reason I joined you was to keep an eye on you because I didn't trust you motherfuckers. And they're just astounded and blown away and offended. And I remember reading this back when it was first published and thinking, you people are stupid if you don't understand why people wouldn't trust you. Yeah. Iron Man, Thor, Hulk running around. Yeah. Um, themes that they brought up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and later in events like uh, uh, Civil War, which they borrowed the name of for one of the Captain America movies. Where their whole government is tussling. Right. And as the storyline goes on, I... I, I'm in danger of probably going into multiple hours of podcast here, so we're going to skip way forward to finding out that T'Challa has hidden a super advanced spaceship in the Hudson Bay, a giant one, just in case he needed to make a suborbital jump across the planet to Wakanda in a few need, minutes. Don't you need to do that every now and then? Yeah, you do. And the White Wolf and his war dogs are coming along and says... I'm impressed. It's just what I would have done. You should destroy those choppers, Lord King. Make an example out of them. Teach your enemies the error of underestimating Wakanda's liege. Meanwhile, T'Challa activates a hidden panel and knocks out all the war dogs and the white wolf. And he walks away saying, my thoughts exactly. <laughs> it's a great moment. But again, we see we are being brought back to that T'Challa's Real power isn't that he has vibranium gadgets. It's not even the heart-shaped herb. Christopher Priest T'Challa is a mastermind, first and foremost. He's a genius who anticipates contingencies. All the other stuff, the running up buildings, the enhanced strength, is all trivial compared to his mind, which makes him a very 20th century kind of superhero and completely divorces him from Jack Kirby's idea of the plucky, noble, adventurer character. As the storyline goes on, we have Nakia, who has hit a point of actively sabotaging Monica Lynn and tries to kill her so that she can't compete for T'Challa's affection, something that he sees through right away. And T'Challa attacks Wakanda to get Wachebe. Unfortunately, Wachebe has stacked up a huge amount of C4 and explosives and is ready for a giant uh, pyrrhic victory by killing himself and killing everybody in the palace in order to kill 
T'Challa because he's obsessed with him. It is all ugly. As it goes on, we basically have a scene where Achebe pretends to be T'Challa, and we have an absolutely ridiculous and brilliantly ridiculous giant UFO toy, one of those claw toy things, filled with bombs and Everett and T'Challa tied up inside it that somebody would have to try to use to save their lives. Now, after a whole series of issues of New Jack Swing-style urban T'Challa, we suddenly have this bizarre Golden Age Batman kind of death trap thrown in, representing Achebe's insanity. This looks like something the Joker would do to Batman. Exactly. So that's the beauty of it. We're seeing a physical manifestation of Achebe's insanity. Achebe's living in a comic book, mm-hmm. while T'Challa is not. And the juxtaposo- juxtaposition of this against all the previous style to date does more to reinforce the previous style than it does to take away from it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was kind of brilliantly done. A nice change in art style. Yep. And we go through a number of artists here. I haven't been naming all of them. I liked the early artists on the title more than the later ones, but there are a lot of competent artists that worked on this title. But, I mean, I'm just going to be blunt. It's Christopher Priest's writing that defines it. Mm-hmm. It just is. Sorry, artists. And at the very end, we see Ramona, who it had been believed was killed by Achebe, and T'Challa wakes her up, and they catch up notes to see if the deception worked. Because before he ever left for America, long before, when the refugee camp problems first started, he worked with Ramona for her to go as a mole on the inside and help feed him information. And the whole trip to America was planned as part of their plan for her to get them to come out in public so that he could root them out with the least amount of damage to Wakandan society. I present to you winner of Bad Moms of comic books. Possibly. What do you mean? Contestant of Worst Moms of comic book history. Why? She helped him. Is that... I, you're, not, you're not following. She went undercover as a spy among the dissidents. Okay, sorry. I'm confused. I didn't... Yeah. Yeah, that's a sudden twist to the end here. But again, so we saw a political mastermind. We saw a strategist mastermind. We saw a technology mastermind. I think I accidentally just said this early, but here we see that he's also a political mastermind. He painted a picture of him under the gun, of him in retreat, of him in trouble, when actually it was all engineered by him to create a situation where he could flush out his enemies and neutralize them as effectively as possible without full-scale war happening. Yeah. So, again, T'Challa, the mastermind. And it's pretty brilliant. Mm-hmm. Now, as we go on, uh, there are some elements that happen. Uh, Nakia, at this point, has been thrown out of the door in Malaje. She's going to become a problem later, of course. We find out that her tribe has one other eligible woman to join the Dora Milaje, and she's been raised in America and doesn't think of herself as Wakandan, and she calls herself Queen Divine Justice. And I think she's really cringy. She's one of the few parts of Christopher Priest's Black Panther I don't like, but I'm sure a lot of people love her and find her irreverent and funny. I don't. 
and we get the reintroduction of Killmonger, who at this point had been believed dead, and it suddenly turns out is alive and working to manipulate the economics of Wakanda to control them. So we have a reinvention of Killmonger, too. He's suddenly not just a thug anymore. He's intelligent and looking to use economics and money to win control of Wakanda rather than violence. And there's a whole bunch I'm skipping over here. Hydro Man, uh, Everett K. Ross as regent of Wakanda, a hilarious attempt to hunt an elephant, um, all kinds of things. Uh, the Hulk at a dance party. This might be the longest uh, comic we've done for Black Panther. Yeah, this is a long run in the complete collection. And I don't want to go all over all of it. Uh, I loved it when the Falcon eventually showed up. But I think the important takeaways there we've already hit at this point, And we're at close to an hour. Actually, I think we just went over an hour. So I think this is a good point to wrap it up because we've hit the thematic points. And there's tons of story here to read if you haven't read it. I'm going to add it to the reading list on the website, comicscourse.org, and Buster will rejoin us next week. Buster, do you have anything to say? Okay, we'll get you some cheese, I promise. All right. You, don't, you didn't like being called Buster My Chops? No, I don't blame you. But Buster's cool? All right, cool, man. All right, so we will catch you in a few more days. We're going to continue... This next week, uh, Black Panther, Christopher Priest, and we are also going to talk about DC Comics a little bit and what I think is an important history of comics thing uh, in regards to Karen Berger, who ran Vertigo, and the woman who kind of helped put her in position, although Paul Levitz uh, deserves some of that credit as well, Jeanette Kahn, who was the head honcho at DC for a long time and how in a time when women were not considered part of the comics industry in a lot of ways, these two women completely changed it, in for the better, I think. Mm -hmm. So we will get to that soon. Until then, read comics. Bye. <laughs>